Hello, I'm Sarah Coakley. I'm a theologian and philosopher of religion, currently living in the Washington DC area. And this is the first in a series of four video uh, online materials, which are to be devoted to the topic of what is the good of the church? That, that is, how are we to think today about what the church is when we think about this from a theological standpoint? What should we rightly expect from it? And what is it fundamentally before God, whether we're thinking about it universally or whether we're thinking about it locally or whether we're thinking about it denominationally or non-denominationally? And this question, the question of ecclesiology, has, I think, become all the more urgent for the churches just now as we are struggling to regather after the pandemic lockdown. And as many people, I think, as I hear it, and I'm an Episcopal priest and an Anglican priest, are wondering afresh about this problem. These uh, four videos uh, will be accompanied by handouts with questions for discussion, short bibliographies, um, texts, and we hope that anyone who comes across them may feel free to use them uh, together or uh, alone uh, for their edification. Today, they then, in this first session, we're going to go back, ad fontes, as we say, to the origins, to the New Testament itself, and ask the question, what can we learn about the good of the church from the foundational documents of the New Testament, from Jesus and from his earliest followers. And I'm delighted and honored to be joined today to have conversation with me and inspire me in this topic um, by Professor Richard Hayes, who um, has recently retired from a, a long career as a, a New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity School where he was the George Washington Ivy Professor of New Testament for many years and also Dean briefly. He's the author of a voluminous number of um, books on the New Testament, both on the Gospels and on the theology and ethics of Paul. And um, he is especially interested in his more recent writings in how the New Testament writers in all the diversity receive scripture out of their Jewish matrix. So welcome, Richard. It's such a delight to be in conversation with you again. And I wonder whether we could start this discussion by plunging straight into the question of um, Jesus and his core teaching. It was said famously by the um, French Catholic modernist um, Alfred Loisie that um, Jesus taught the kingdom and what he got was the church. Um, I think that's a rough translation of what he said. And um, one of the things we've got to tackle here first is um, whether Jesus even envisaged a church. But, but shall we start, if we may, just thinking about his core teaching on the kingdom and its relation to Judaism? Could I ask you to expatiate on that briefly? Of course, Sarah, I'm happy to be with you and glad to. I would say, first of all, that Jesus was solidly anchored in his Jewish heritage, that he was, first of all, a Jewish prophet, and that he was coming to call Israel to repentance and to a recovery 
of the heart of what the law taught. And he was forming a community of disciples around that message uh, of a restoration of Israel. Uh, and so his, his message about the kingdom of God was a proclamation that the inbreaking of God's mercy and justice was already at hand. He was calling people to respond to that and live in light of that message. The passage in which he talks about uh, the kingdom of God being within you in, in Luke is often misunderstood to mean that it's something that's a purely internal spiritual matter. But actually the, the Greek in that passage says, uh, the Greek is entos humon, the, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The view is plural, and it, it's not talking about just an internal reality. It's talking mm -hmm. about the formation of a community of followers where the kingdom of God can be manifest, where it can be seen and, and lived. And so, so, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. So this is, this is Luke 17, 2021, isn't it? And um, it's so easy to spiritualize that, that text, but when you place it amidst all the other kingdom sayings and kingdom parables in the, in the first three gospels. It, it's clear that, um, uh, that the kingdom is, is something already pressing on us, but at the same time also is to have a glorious future. So it has a sort of dynamism and it's also not, it's not a territorial kingdom. It's a, it's a, it's a divine rule, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, the, the Basileia, the, mm. the kingdom is, uh, I mean, it refers to God's rule, the, the fact that God is making uh, power uh, and and uh, presence a real thing uh, in in the midst of the community. And one and of so the great difficulties, of course, for especially nineteenth-century scholarship was was coming to terms with the fact that Jesus seemingly preached this coming rather imminently. Uh, mm -hmm. So so we get in. Mark 9.1, the, the announcement that some of you may not taste death until this kingdom comes in power. Um, and uh, clearly this didn't happen as such, um, right. which has been an embarrassment for modern scholarship um, and for theology to some extent. Um, we're going to talk in a minute about what did come, but, um, but of course, what would you say is retained from that, that sensibility of urgency? Um, um, and of something pressing upon us in, in Jesus's teaching? Well, I, I think that there, there are those moments in the gospels where you do have those sayings pointing to an imminent future coming mm -hmm. of God's kingdom. Uh, but at the same time, there's all, there are also warnings saying, no one knows the day mm -hmm. of the hour. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Not even the son, but only the father in heaven. And uh, the, the early church actually pretty quickly realized that they were living in an, a time of indefinite expectation, mm -hmm. uh, that the, they were conscious of living in a, a, a state of already not yet. The kingdom mm -hmm. has already broken in to our experience, uh, but we don't yet see its consummation, which mm -hmm. will ultimately be the resurrection of the dead. And mm -hmm. the, establishment of God's full justice in the world. And uh, so we're uh, in that in-between time. And that's God's also seen in the, um, in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? When 
Jesus says, you know, thy kingdom come. Yes, yes. On yes. earth. Yeah, we're expecting. Yeah, may your kingdom come on earth. Yes. Yeah. In heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we gloss over that too quickly, I think. <laughs> yeah. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so the recovery. We say, we say, thy kingdom come, comma, on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> Instead of saying the phrase, hold, I can come on earth as it is in heaven. So quite a lot of the, um, when we try and recapture the kind of urgency and demand of Jesus's teaching, much of it is trying to recapture this sensibility about time and, um, mm -hmm. and presence plus urgency plus future right. demand. Yeah. Um, it's tricky to sustain that urgency across long stretches of time, but it's, exactly it's what the New Testament models for us. Exactly. Um, but, but then here's the test question, of course, for this first half of our discussion. Does Jesus ever talk about church? I mean, they, they, the, the Greek term is ecclesia, the assembly. Um, there's one famous place, isn't there, in Matthew, where uh, at least Matthew thinks he talked to church. Um, yes, exactly. That word, I think, uh, occurs only twice in the mm. Gospels. And the first one is the uh, uh, saying of Jesus to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Mm. Um, the, um, uh, I mean, that passage is is significant because uh, I believe that it doesn't refer to the creation of an institution. Mm. It refers to the word of Peter's confession. There's mm -hmm. a little bit of a pun in the Greek text. You are Petras. Mm -hmm. We translate as a name, Peter. And on this Petra, I will build my church. And Petra mm -hmm. means a a slab or a, a, a huge mass of rock. And the, it, it immediately follows Peter saying, you are the Christ mm -hmm. of the living God. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's actually the word of confession that is the rock on which the church is built rather than Peter himself, as, as we see that Peter immediately uh, starts uh, wanting to back out of any proclamation about the cross and Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, and Peter denies Jesus at his arrest and so on. So Peter is hardly a rock in that sense. It's, it's the confession. That's... So and anyway, of course, the, uh, the, the Caesarea Philippi incident here in the other synoptic gospel, so-called, um, doesn't include this particular Petrine prediction about a church. So right. totally that, was, that was good. It's very much part of Matthew's theology, um, yeah. which, you, which you've just explicated. There is this one other place in Matthew, isn't there, in Matthew 18, where um, there is talk of an ecclesia, um, right. which is an interesting passage. Um, that's, a, that's a passage about community discipline. Mm, okay. uh, and in that case, it makes very clear that the ecclesia is a community of disciples. Uh, it has to do with how you deal with people who sin against you. And yeah. first, you go to the person alone, and if the person won't listen, then you take somebody else with you. And if the person still doesn't listen, then you take it to the church, the ecclesia. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, that's the assembly. Mm -hmm. So it, what that does suggest is that Jesus does envision that there will be a community of people mm -hmm. who are consciously identifying as his followers, as mm -hmm. part of the movement that he's creating. And that's a, to be a community 
of people who are disciples and seeking to be formed as Jesus followers and to hold one another accountable to living in a way that's appropriate to being Jesus followers. And Matthew is just a tiny bit more um, interested in that kind of proto-institutional element perhaps than the other gospels, would you say? I mean, in John, we get these wonderful metaphors of vine and branches and so on, sheep and shepherd, which is a bit different, isn't it? And it's um, imaginary. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's a much more set of organic images mm. in John, uh, whereas uh, Matthew does indeed have a concern about um, what we might call community order. Um, and uh, the, the, the great New Testament scholar Paul Minear described the Gospel of Matthew uh, as a training manual for prophets. <laughs> um, <laughs> How to be a prophet. Practice <laughs> is uh, incongruous, but it, it is, um, Matthew does have a, a concern about how the community is going to take shape, mm. how it's going to maintain practices that will hold people to living in accordance with Jesus' teaching. And we have his other metaphor of the city on the hill, don't we, in, in um, Matthew yeah. 5, which is also very, a very striking one. Um, so, so far, we, we can't see any sign in Jesus' teaching that he envisaged a sort of institutional church. Um, um, but what we do see is that he is creating around him a gathering to welcome the kingdom. Um, and I wonder whether we could just pause briefly before we get to the cataclysmic events of death and resurrection on the night before Jesus died and his, his institution of the Eucharist, because um, we have this in the three synoptic gospels, interestingly not in John, um, but um, here Jesus does seem to envisage that he has to give something to his disciples to do to form them into his body. And this is, this is something, of, this idea of the body is going to be taken up by Paul. And what this, this so-called anamnesis, this memorial meal that he's giving them, um, why is this important for our thinking about um, the good of the church? <laughs> well, it, for, I think there are a couple of things that can be said there, Sarah. The, the, I mean, first of all, it envisioned, Jesus is very clearly expecting and envisioning his own immediate death. Mm -hmm. And he is creating a, a form with the expectation that there will be a community of followers that will continue to gather in his name mm -hmm. after his death. And that they are being given a, a way both to interpret that death uh, and, to, and um, to see it as a way of remembering, not just remembering him, but uh, in a sense, making him present in a continuing way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why he says this, this is my body. And this, this cup is, is the blood of the, of the new covenant. Covenant, yeah. Um, and so that covenant is something that binds together a community of people who are continuing the mission that Jesus began. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, he has also prophesied that he will be raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. And they don't get it. I mean, yeah. repeatedly, the Gospels bear witness that uh, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they began to understand what he was talking about. Um, so... Clearly, the, the Eucharist, as we come to call it, 
is a way of not just recalling Jesus, but gathering the community in his name uh, around the event of his death and resurrection. And as at least Matthew adds, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, yes. So there's a very rich theology here of atonement already encoded in right. the theology of the cup. Um, when we come to segue now through the, the great moments of the, of the death and, and resurrection, um, when, when, when the New Testament tells us about these extraordinary events, um, what would you say then is the moment of the, the birth of the church? Is it, this depends on your theology of, um, um, of resurrection and Pentecost, of course, um, yeah. and not everyone has agreed on that. But it's, it's, it's kind of impossible to think about the church in the New Testament outside the response to the resurrection, isn't it? I mean, this is an absolutely crucial oh, yes. axial I mean, event. Absolutely. You know, there were many other uh, prophetic figures who tried to start movements of followers uh, within Israel who met uh, an unhappy end at the hands of uh, the Romans. And um, they didn't form movements that persisted and endured and uh this one did and it did because precisely of the resurrection i guess i would say that luke and john at least are in agreement that the birth of the church has to do with the giving of the spirit which comes only after jesus resurrection but as paul says in 1 corinthians 15 you know our faith is completely in vain without the resurrection so this yes. is the foundational moment. Um, I, I wonder whether you could um, say something about the immediate sort of ethical effects uh, for the very, er very earliest churches that we hear in the book of Acts. In mm -hmm. Acts 4, um, at this point, I think the, we're told that, you know, um, this little gathering is starting to be called the way, and, um, and it has a way, it has a way of life. It's it has, as Acts 4.32 following says, you know, everyone is of one heart and soul. Um, and, and they're giving their, they're putting all their money together and sharing it in distribution. Um, so there is a, a sort of instantaneous ethical community formed of a, of a radical egalitarian nature. Yes, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, and if, if you'll allow me to say a little bit uh, about this passage mm. that may reflect a little of the historical background. That phrase that you uh, quoted from Acts 4.32, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, that is a uh, evocation of uh, an ideal of friendship that was present very strongly in mm -hmm. Greek philosophy mm -hmm. uh, from Aristotle at least onwards that, uh, that the that true friends are those who are one heart and one soul. So it's, this is a community of friends, but the extraordinary thing is that it goes on and says that they also didn't claim private ownership of possessions so mm. that there was not a needy person among them. Mm. And this is a, a point of translation that I always used to hammer home to students. Uh, the, the, for example, the NRSV translates as follows, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all, period. Mm -hmm. And then it starts a new sentence. 
there was not a needy person among them. But in the Greek, that's not the start of a new sentence. Mm -hmm. There's a, a conjunction there, gar, meaning for. Mm -hmm. And this is how the sentence should be translated. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all for mm -hmm. there was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the, the point I'm making is that the, the proof being adduced that great grace was upon them all, and the, the proof of, in a sense, the proof of the reality of the resurrection is that there's no needy person among them. Yes, yeah, they've, wonderful. They've, yeah. they've become a community uh, where grace is manifested concretely in uh, the common life. That's marvelous. Um, I, I would also wonder if we could pause and uh, reflect on how, as an extension of Jesus's institution of the Last Supper of the Eucharist, Paul then, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, expounds what, what has to go along with this, because it's rather, it's rather congruent with what you just said about Acts, I think, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it, it, it's very striking that when you go to 1 Corinthians 11, the memorial of, the, of, of Jesus's institution of the Eucharist comes bang in the middle of an enormous disputation about um, how people should eat together. I mean, it's it's a very contentious chapter, um, and we 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 never in church read read the institution bit, right. you know, in in the context. Um, this is so important that 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 as you've said to me often before, the thing that really divides these earliest Christians when they're divided, and my goodness, they're divided right from the start. This is nothing new. It is is who eats with whom and uh, what you eat. I mean, it's, it's a series of class uh, problems. Um, it's interestingly not a series of problems of sexuality, which are the things that divide us in the church now by and large. Could you say a bit just about um, sort of the key passage here um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, particularly 34, I think, you know, the, the passage about condemnation and eating together and so on, because this strikes right. me as another, another thing that, that isn't often well expounded in, in contemporary. Well, yes, you're, you're right. Um, it's partly again here because of the translation issue that I'll get to in a minute, but what you said is, is quite true. I mean, he has, it, you know, there, there are many controversies going on in the Corinthian church, and Paul is writing this letter partly to address matters that they have written to him about and partly to address reports he's gotten about divisions in the church. And he, but he, what he says, and you're right, this, this mm. passage is never, it's not part of the lectionaries that we mm. read uh, week to week in church. But he says, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. And why isn't it the Lord's Supper? Because when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. <laughs> so the, the, it's an unruly uh, assembly and it's, it is divided by class. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like the airlines where you get good food in first class and <laughs> a bag of pretzels in, in coach. 
the people who are poor are not getting to share in the food uh, of the meal. And so people are going hungry and being, as Paul actually goes on to say, humiliated mm -hmm. by the way that they're eating this meal. Um, and so then he has the institution of the Lord's Supper. I received from you from the Lord what I also handed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and so on. We, we all have that, you know, I'm sure all of your church is good Episcopalians here this week after week. Uh, but the, interestingly, he quotes the tradition and at the end of it, verse 26, the, the, what he says then is not part of that tradition that he's passing on. It's his own comment on it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death mm. until he comes. Mm. And so there's that, that interval again between the already and the not yet, actually. Mm. We're living in the interval between the Lord's death and his uh, triumphant return. But in the meantime, then, you should partake of the supper worthily rather than unworthily. Mm. When he says unworthily, he means that you're abusing the poor and not sharing mm. the food you have in community. Mm. And, and the, the, the verse 34 that you referred to at the end of the exhortation is, uh, if you're hungry, the NRSV says, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. But I believe that the, the proper translation of that is literally what the Greek says, if anyone is hungry, let him eat in the house. Mm -hmm. That's what it says. And mm -hmm. he said that the problem is that some are hungry. Mm -hmm. and, and, not, and, and so what he's, he's not telling people to fill up before they come to church. <laughs> he's telling people in the church assembly to let anyone who's there eat so that they won't be humiliated and so that they'll have something to eat. And so that if, if they don't do that, it will be for their condemnation. In other words, what they're not doing is they're not discerning the body. body. They're failing to discern the body. And again, that doesn't mean a doctrine of transubstantiation that he's worried about. It means they're not discerning that they are part of the one body of Christ. And that when they gather and share a common meal, that's what they're both symbolizing and enacting. They're proclaiming by their action, the Lord's death until he comes. So um, it would seem a good idea to climax in this discussion on precisely what Paul has to say as his, one of his chief metaphors for the church, i.e. the body. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what he also has to say about what being one body in Christ means for um, over, overturning, if you, you might say, existing class structures and um, genetic, uh, genetic honor arising from structures of society that are patriarchal. So um, uh, perhaps we could go from one to the other. Paul talks about us being one body in Christ um, in, in a couple of places in, in, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, and of the extraordinary sort of interpenetration and mutual accountability and of, of this vision. But of course, he also talks about us all um, being conjoined with Christ in our 
baptism and going into his body, as it were, in his death and in his resurrection. So this is this is really the sort of core metaphor for what we all share in the church, isn't it? Um, I think we tend to forget how radical this is. Um, it, it, it slips off our tongue a little bit too easily. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in, in common usage, I think the idea of the body of Christ has become just a way of saying, uh, you know, we are all, um, I don't know, participants in a, we meet together or something like that. But no, th th there's, a, there's a much more radical notion of a, uh, what's sometimes been called a mystical union mm -hmm. uh, of believers with Christ and therefore also with one another. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul is, is quite serious about that. It, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not just a, a metaphor. It's something that he, I don't like the phrase, just a metaphor, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a metaphor that, that describes some sort of a organic union that has actually taken place. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the passage where you probably first see it is related not as much to the Lord's Supper as to baptism mm -hmm, exactly. in Romans 6, mm -hmm. uh, where Paul says, don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so by the glory of the uh, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Mm -hmm. So that, that notion of being united, it, it's actually a very organic metaphor. The Greek is sumphotoi, uh, which means sort of planted together or gra like the grafting in of a branch into a plant which is a metaphor that Paul's very fond of. Fond oh, no, yes. Uh, so, um, but it, it's that notion that we actually, in some sense, are really participants in union with Christ mm -hmm. and therefore also with one another. Mm -hmm. That's what the body of Christ imagery is. Getting. And this means a radically new vision of the family, because when in Romans 8, he talks about us as, as being adopted children, techna. Mm -hmm um adopted into the family it's 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 a it's a radical idea of a sort of displacement of the um prevailing cultural um presumptions about superiority and inferiority um depending on your birth um and instead um a, a being um fully brought into the unity with christ by the spirit so that one is able to approach the father in prayer on a radically equal basis. Um, right. So this is this is socially very, very extraordinary. Um, it, it, it's quite extraordinary, and the um, and the those you mentioned family, and I would mm -hmm. say that's the other dominant cluster of metaphors that Paul mm -hmm. uses alongside the body for talking about the church. Mm -hmm. uh, he he always addresses them as brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. uh, and um, the, as you say, the adoption metaphor is very central to Paul, mm -hmm. and that actually has to do with the fact that they, that many of his churches are predominantly Gentile, and they have been uh, adopted by God into the covenant that 
Israel previously enjoyed. And that he goes on at great length about that in Romans, uh, but we don't have time probably to talk about that. Mm. But, the, but the, to me, the most striking passage that illustrates what you're saying about the overturning or the, the uh, radical renovation of social convention is in Paul's little letter to Philemon, mm. where he's uh, writing uh, to a slave owner who is previously the owner of a slave who has apparently run away and Paul has encountered him and uh, perhaps converted him to faith in Christ. But Paul is sending, sending the slave back with this cover letter uh, to Philemon. And the real climax of his appeal to Philemon is this in verses 15 and 16. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this is not what normally happens to runaway slaves. <laughs> in the Roman Empire who are returned to their masters, they could be beaten and severely punished and so on. They're, they're not welcomed back as a brother. Uh, and uh, there's a great discussion of this in the opening of Tom Wright's huge uh, uh, set of books on Paul and the faithfulness of God. But he actually starts his whole discussion of Paul by discussing this passage in Philemon to indicate how radically Paul's vision of the church as a new community and as a family is disrupting social convention and class divisions uh, that were taken for granted as simply part of the way reality was in the Roman world. So when we domesticate the notion of church as family back into our own perception of families, we are really missing the point um, from yeah, the Pauline perspective. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richard, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, I wonder if I really put you on the spot at the end and asked you in the light of what we discussed in the Gospels and in Paul um, and in the Book of Acts, what is from the New Testament perspective, the good of the church? <laughs> What would you say? I would say in a, uh, a phrase that the good of the church is to bring us together to embody God's grace and peace mm -hmm. and to live as a sign of resurrection hope in community. Mm -hmm. Embody God's grace and peace and to live as a sign of resurrection mm -hmm. hope in community. That's wonderful. So perhaps what we need to recover at this time of crisis in the churches is that dramatic sense of how the church introduces us to the place where life and death contend and, yeah. and where we are being invited to discover painfully often what it is to love our enemies. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Richard, thank you very, very much for speaking with us. And um, this has been a wonderful start to some reflections on the nature of the church. In the second of this series, I'm going to be talking with two outstanding young historians of the church about key moments in the church's history, and especially in the history of Anglicanism and Episcopalianism, in which we have been 
asked to think afresh about what the good of the church is. Thank you again, Richard, and bye-bye. All right.